0: Sex, 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 sex. And now that I have your attention, book. Hello and welcome to Book, a Bible podcast for everybody. I'm Josh Way. Those unfamiliar with the Bible might be surprised to learn that there is an entire book in it about sex. Perhaps even more surprising is that this book is not a collection of prudish warnings about the dangers of sex, nor a screed against adultery, nor an ode to the wonders of procreation. It's a collection of erotic poetry about two young lovers enjoying each other. It's called Shir Hashirim in Hebrew, the Song of Songs. Historically, Song of Songs is another hot potato. It bears the inscription Shir Hashirim, Asher Lashlomo, the Song of Songs, which is of Solomon, But as with the Psalms, which are of David, we're left to wonder exactly what that means. Did Solomon write it? Traditional interpretation says yes, case closed. Or was it written to Solomon or for Solomon? Scholarship leans more in that direction. The Semitic literary tradition is full of books written in the names of famous figures. It's neither controversial nor a stretch to suggest that Solomon is being invoked here by a later author cashing in on his reputation as an international playboy. Solomon is only mentioned a couple of times in the text and not in the most flattering light. There's also the issue of the actual Hebrew text, which appears to be from an era later than Solomon's, somewhere around 900 BCE. Conclusion, authorship unknown. Because, like Job and Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs is not a traditional historical or biographical narrative, we do best not to force any particular context onto it. It is an ancient Israelite poem, or perhaps a short drama, and it is about erotic love. In form, it looks very much like Egyptian love poetry, which is fascinating given Solomon's betrothal to a daughter of Pharaoh, but there we go, getting into the authorship debate again. The short book, divided in modern Bibles into eight brief chapters, is a back-and-forth flirtation and profession of erotic intent between a young woman and a young man, with occasional references to the girls of Jerusalem. Here are the opening exchanges. The young woman says, "'Oh, give me the kisses of your mouth, for your love is more delightful than wine. Your ointment yields a sweet fragrance. Your name is like the finest oil.'" Therefore, virgins love you. Draw me after you. Let's run. The king has brought me into his chambers. Now, the reference here to the young man as king is most likely a playful tease, because when the real king is mentioned in a couple chapters, we'll see that he is a distant and somewhat negative figure. The young man responds, I compare you, my love, to a mare from Pharaoh's chariots. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with strings of jewels. She answers, while my king was on his couch, my perfume gave forth its fragrance. My beloved is to me a bag of myrrh lodged between my breasts. My beloved is to me as a spray of henna blossoms from the vineyards of Engedi The lovers exchange compliments and confess their attraction for each other, and things begin to heat up in chapter two when she says this. His left hand was under my head. His right arm embraced me. I adjure you, girls of Jerusalem, by gazelles or by the doze of the field, do not wake or rouse love until it pleases. After what sounds like a rather intimate encounter, the tone of the poem shifts. Hark, my beloved, here he comes, leaping over mountains, bounding over hills, my beloved is like a gazelle or like a young stag. There he stands behind our wall, gazing through the window, peering through the lattice. Suddenly the lovers are separated, but she is anticipating his swift approach and a little bit of peeping. By chapter three, he is off the scene completely, and she is left to pine for her beloved. Upon my couch at night I sought the one I love, I sought but found him not, I must rise and roam the town, through the streets and through the squares, I must seek the one I love, I sought him but found him not. Then the lovers are reunited, and once again the young woman implores the girls of Jerusalem, do not wake or rouse love until it pleases. Then we come to an allusion to King Solomon. There goes Solomon's chariot, encircled by sixty warriors of the warriors of Israel, all of them trained in warfare, skilled in battle, each with sword on thigh, because of terror by night. King Solomon made himself a carriage of wood from Lebanon. He made its posts of silver, its back of gold, its seat of purple wool. Within it was decked of love by the girls of Jerusalem. O girls of Zion, go forth and gaze upon King Solomon, wearing the crown that his mother gave him on his wedding day, on his day of bliss. There's a heading in my Christian Bible over this section that says, King Solomon arrives for his wedding. Now, that's part of an interpretive scheme that we'll discuss later, but basically it presumes that Solomon himself is the young man in the poem and is now seen arriving at his own wedding. But that's not the explicit tone of the passage, and there's another way to read this. As the young woman is enthralled in passion for her lover, she offhandedly tells the silly girls of Jerusalem to go ahead and gawk at the king with all of his pomp and riches while she remains in the arms of her beloved. In this there are echoes of Kohelet with its message that wisdom and riches are but vanity and the enjoyment of intimate love is the only real pursuit. Chapter 4 finds the lovers pouring out more flattery upon each other. Your eyes are like doves. Your teeth are like a flock of ewes. Your lips are like a crimson thread. Your neck is like the Tower of David. Your breasts are like two fawns, twins grazing in the lilies." In chapter 5, the cycle of chapter 2 repeats. The young man leaves, and she must search for him. In chapter 6, she finds him in his garden, which becomes a sort of metaphor for their lovemaking. In chapter 7, the young man describes how he intends to express his love for the young woman. "'How fair you are, how beautiful! "'O love with all its rapture! "'Your stately form is like the palm, "'your breasts are like clusters of fruit.' I say, let me climb the palm, let me take hold of its branches. Let your breasts be like clusters of grapes, your breath like the fragrance of apples, and your mouth like the choicest wine. Let it flow to my beloved as new wine, gliding over lips and teeth. In the final chapter, various metaphors are employed to describe the passionate love at the center of the book. Let me be a seal upon your heart like the seal upon your hand. For love is fierce as death, passion is mighty as Sheol. Its darts are darts of fire, a blazing flame. Says the poet, love is an unstoppable force like death itself, and it deserves the same reverence. Vast floods cannot quench love, nor rivers drown it. If a man offered all his wealth for love, he would be laughed to scorn. Once again, there are shades of Kohelet all the wealth and work and wisdom and stature in the world cannot begin to approach the value of this love. And here now is perhaps the most interesting metaphor at the very close of the book. Solomon had a vineyard in Baal Hamon. He had to post guards in the vineyard. A man would give for its fruit a thousand pieces of silver. I have my very own vineyard. You may have the thousand, O Solomon, and the guards of the fruit two hundred. O you who linger in this garden, a lover is listening. Let me hear your voice. Hurry, my beloved, swift as a gazelle or a young stag, to the hills of spices. Solomon had a vineyard so desirable that he had to post guards and people would pay premium prices just for a taste. I have my own vineyard, says the young woman, my love, my sexuality, and there's no price high enough to let anyone but my lover in. And that's the Song of Songs. All that's left is to examine the peculiar problem it is presented to interpreters in both the Jewish and Christian traditions. Both have struggled with its very appearance within the canon of scripture. What do we do with a book that is, on the surface, completely and exclusively about sexuality? Well, for many, the answer was nothing. And attempts were made in Jewish and Christian circles to exclude Song of Songs from the Bible but defenders appeared on both sides and solutions were proposed. On the Jewish side, a renowned rabbi named Akiva Ben Yosef declared in the first century CE, a little after the time of Jesus, that Song of Songs should not be rejected but embraced by Jews and celebrated as an extended metaphor for the love of God for his people Israel. His suggestion was taken to heart and Song of Songs became a popular scripture reading at Jewish weddings and at certain feasts. Several centuries later, Protestant reformer Martin Luther would make his own defense of the Song of Songs, using the text's Davidic connotations to put forth a messianic reading that turned it into a celebration of Jesus and his love for the church. This is now the default Christian interpretation of the book. Of course, that means that the text has to be read in a very specific way. Solomon must be the author, and the intimate interludes described in the book must be understood within the context of a marriage, hence the headings in my ESV Bible, the bride confesses her love, Solomon arrives for his wedding, and so on. Now, we already discussed the reasons that Solomonic authorship is doubted, and as for the wedding night context for the poem, well, I have two comments. On the one hand, an Israelite love poem is very unlikely to depict sex outside of a marriage situation, but on the other hand, we must be honest and acknowledge that there isn't a word in the text that suggests such a context. And even if Martin Luther had his druthers, a wedding of King Solomon is hardly the place to celebrate biblical sexual ideals. Personally, I have no issue with the idea of Song of Songs as a metaphor for divine love, but... I must insist that we first and foremost recognize what it is at face value, an exploration and celebration of human sexuality. That's it. That's square one. The rush to place it in some other context betrays an unhealthy squeamishness at the very idea of sex. For myself, I find it endlessly reassuring that the Bible is so forthcoming and candid on topics like this, even if most of its interpreters are not. All right, time for a personal story. As a young kid, I went to a private Christian school, and one time a a few of us got into trouble on the playground for reading Song of Songs and giggling at the naughty parts. A few months later, the school was ravaged by a sex scandal involving a pastor and a secretary, and I was mercifully rescued and released into the public school system. Now that I look back, the irony of the situation is not lost on me. We kids were told that we shouldn't be reading Song of Songs because it was inappropriate for us and that we couldn't grasp the sexual material in the holy way in which it was intended. Meanwhile, the messy sexual politics among the adults at the school was rotting it all away from the inside. Now, look, book is not about preaching or moralizing, so I'm not going to get into it too deeply. But um, suffice to say, the honest take on human sexuality and love found in Song of Songs was exactly what all of us needed the kids, and the adults alike. We all needed to know that sex isn't some dirty, shameful secret, nor some holy, neutered metaphor. It's real, and it's not absent from the portrait of humanity sketched out by the Bible. All right, this has gotten way too personal and way too preachy, so that's going to do it for us today. Next week is Christmas, so I'll be taking a short break to enjoy the holiday, and you do the same, whatever holiday you intend to celebrate. For Jesus, it was Hanukkah, by the way, in John chapter 10, verses 22 and 23. This has been Book, a Bible podcast for everybody, and I have been Josh Way. If you enjoyed this podcast, I encourage you to share, like, tweet, tweep, cleep, sweep, blog, tumble, stumble, crumble, chumble, and flues it to your online friends and family. If you have any comments, questions, or constructive feedback, please email me at, at joshway.com. You can also leave a voicemail at 801-760-3013, and I'll try to answer it right here on the podcast. Read the book blog and find more content at book.joshuay.com. That's it for me, Bible pals. I will catch you in the new year.